as we get prepare our hearts to take part of this memorial service. Years ago, Debbie A. Criswell, who is pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, preached a sermon called The Scarlet Thread of Redemption that will not make a whole lot of sense to a lot of people today because, well, what he was referencing is not necessarily the norm. Back in the day when most folks had leather or bonded leather Bibles, very often each page of that Bible was kept together with a thread that ran from front to back. And if you were to look at the edge of that Bible, for most of them, the thread that held them together was scarlet. And his point was, throughout the Word of God, the idea of God's redemption is there and powerful and true from Genesis through the rest of the Word of God. And I believe that he was right. Now, within the Old Testament, we can find many anticipations about what would become known as the Lord's Supper. And today I want us to observe two such anticipations, foreshadows of something very amazing to happen in Jesus Christ. And the first I want to share with you is focused on the Passover meal. The story of that first Passover is told in Exodus 12. And Howard Griffith, in Spreading Feasts, examined the moment in Israel's history. He said, God protected Israel from all of the judgment plagues of Egypt. The plagues did not fall on them. And in the climactic tenth plague, the rod of judgment was raised against the Egyptians whose firstborn were threatened with death. But if God's judgment required the death of the sinner, how could Israel survive that threat? Surely they were sinners too. Despite God's distinguishing grace, their their final redemption from bondage could be accomplished only by atoning sacrifice. He says back in Genesis, when God had required the death of Isaac, Abraham's firstborn, God himself supplied the substitute. Abraham sacrificed the ram instead of the beloved son. Now with Israel and God preparing them to leave Egypt through Moses, God commanded each household to choose a lamb of the flock. It had to be spotless. It had to be perfect. And in Exodus 12, 27, we are told it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. The lambs were slaughtered, and the blood sprinkled with hyssop on the doorposts. On the night the angel of death passed over, the firstborn in those homes were spared. The smearing of the blood on the doorposts with hyssop signaled purification from the stain of guilt. God saw the bud and his justice was satisfied. For Israel, the Passover lamb was a sacrifice. This Passover sacrifice, it was a peace offering. Their feast of blessing and joy rested on the sacrifice that the Lord made for them. And God was reconciled. The second anticipation focuses on Jesus' role as Christ, our Passover. 
And Griffith points out the feast of the Old Testament confirmed God's great salvation for believing Israelites. The Passover especially reminded them of God's power and grace in the Exodus. The sacrifice of a lamb or a goat from the flock with its blood sprinkled on the door with hyssop was a sign of salvation by a substitute. The feast itself was joyful fellowship with God of the covenant who had saved them from judgment. And they were to tell each generation of the family, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. This image of Christ as Passover is the focus of our text this morning. We're going to take a look at it and try to see. You may, if you looked at the text in your bulletin and you read it, you might be thinking, what does this have to do with the Lord's Supper? Well, we're going to find out. And I ask you to stand as we look together at 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. Now, this is in the middle of a statement by Paul, and I will fill in the blanks. But hear what the word of the Lord says to our hearts today. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Why do we need that Passover lamb? Why do we need that sacrifice? Because of sin. Now, it's not just because of a sin here and there, but because at the very depths of our beings, Our hearts, we have consistently and constantly through life rebelled against God and offended him. That was the bent of our life. That described who we were. Paul put it this way in Ephesians. He told the Ephesians, you were dead in your sin. And there was only one hope for us to be raised from that and that was through Jesus Christ. For the Israelites, that blood over the doorposts, the lentils, was a sign and God's angel passed over them and they were delivered. But here, in the kingdom of God, in this day and age of grace, when Christ has come and paid the ultimate sacrifice, his spotlessness is not just about physical purity of the lamb. Christ was pure throughout everything he was. He came, he gave his life for for us. He was willing to die. He actually said of his life, John 4.35, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then Peter tells us, 1 Peter 2.22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He goes on in 1 Peter 1. You were a ransom from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver of gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
You see, from eternity, God knew what was going to happen in the Garden of Eden. It didn't surprise him. And we are told before the foundation of the world, God was already putting into place the plan of redemption. And he led and worked through his people Israel to show the concept of redemption, how they might be purified, until finally, Paul says in Galatians, at the fullness of time, when the time was just right, God sent forth his Son. And it is he who is our sacrifice, not a lamb without blemish, but the Lamb of God who lived the perfect life and died as a criminal on the Roman cross. In our text, what's happening here, Paul was addressing a problem that was a huge issue for the Corinthian church. And in doing so, his call pointed to Christ's sacrifice. He challenged his readers to live the life they were saved to live. That's what this text is about. Live the way you are meant to live in Christ. Live the way of someone who has been purchased from sin out of death. Live that life. Now with that in mind, we need to yield ourselves into Christ's hand. Every time we celebrate communion, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper with our Savior and with each other, we are being called to live a life that honors him and glorifies him. So we are going to look at this text, and I want you to listen carefully because Paul is giving admonitions here. He's giving instruction, and he's doing it as strongly as he possibly can. You will notice he begins not with, you're trying real hard. He begins with, what you're doing is wrong. So let's take a look the truths of this text and what it, should, what it says to us. And first of all, human pride can lead to the loss of identity. Keep in mind, he is writing to Christians. He is writing to people who have opened their hearts by, and received by grace through faith the salvation of the Lord. They are children of God. And Paul points that out in this text. But when we look at it, I need you to understand the context of Paul's statement pointed to the real problem the Corinthians were facing. Now, for those verses preceding, the issue that brings Paul to this discussion is the fact that there was someone living in Corinth bonding with the church who was living a life of sexual sin. We are told it was a man living with his father's wife in a, a sexual relationship. Now, we're not exactly sure what he meant. It may be that he was living with his stepmother. He had stolen her from his father. There is a possibility it was even worse than that. And I'll let your mind fill in the blank there. But the reality, what Paul was saying, what he is doing, even the pagans in your city would shirk, they would pull away from, and here you are, not calling him to do the right thing, but boasting how open you are, and how wonderful you are. Paul was telling the Corinthians that they had to deal with this issue immediately, but I want you to understand, 
I believe this text, while the whole passage tends to be focused on by preachers on that one issue of sexual sin, I believe that issue is only a symptom of a deeper problem that pervaded the Corinthians and can be found all the way through 1st and 2nd Corinthians. A problem that is seen throughout Paul's letter. You see, when you look at the text, Paul's use of the word yeast is not really pointing, I believe, to the man. But he's pointing to the hearts of the Corinthians. Listen again to verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole patch of dough? You're boasting how wonderful you are. You're bragging that you're even more loving than everybody else. But the thing is, they have a disease within their hearts that has actually led to the symptom of celebrating sinful relationship. You see the real issue? That nice little word boast is pointing to pride. It was pride that needed to be dealt with because pride has led the, the Ephesians down, uh, excuse me, the Corinthians into so many different problems. Think of it. When they open, when Paul opens the book, one of the first issues of pride he de- deals with is you are all boasting in which preacher you follow. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. And even one group saying, well, we're of Christ. And he's challenging them. I once had a friend, and I I will not name him nor the church, but I once had a friend in the foyer of their entranceway was a huge 20 uh, by 18 portrait of a former pastor. Now, I've served in a church that had if you will, a wall of, of people of ill, you know, disrepute, you know, pastors all up and out. But it was every pastor that they had a picture for, including me. This was one pastor. And when he attempted to remove that painting, that portrait, to put up a Lottie Moon offering, he was quickly pulled aside and said, you need to put that up now. I think that's kind of what the Corinthians... We're Paul! He's the best preacher in the world! Well, apparently, Apollos was a little bit more gifted in speaking. And then, to show how holy they are, well, we just listen to Christ. And Paul says, you are all messed up. It is seen in their arguing over spiritual gifts. The Spirit of Christ who is meant to draw people together, to bring us into unity. They're saying, my gift is better than your gift. That sounds vaguely familiar. It's still going on. And most importantly, we see this example of pride when you look at 1 Corinthians 11, which discusses the Lord's Supper. We read from the words of institution from that passage. Their pride is leading them to abuse the supper. Because some of the people in Corinth are wealthy. And their pride is showing because they've brought a lot of food, they've brought a lot of stuff to the love feast, but they're eating it all. Some of them are getting stuffed to the point of gluttony and gorging themselves, and others 
are not getting anything. Some of them are getting drunk as they're trying to celebrate the supper. Why? Because of pride. And so we come here. These people were not considering the others within the body as they took of the supper. So, at that moment, instead of communion with the Lord and fellow Christians, it was basically in every person for themselves. So because of this, Paul is saying, you have forgotten who you are. Your boasting is not good. You have allowed a yeast of the world. Many people, including your pastor, I believe the very first sin was all about pride. When the serpent tempts Eve and says, you're not going to die. If you eat it, you'll be like him. That won the debate. You'll be like God. And she ate and gave to Adam. These folks, because of pride, are forgetting who they are really meant to be. And when it comes to us folks, losing sight of the humility that should mark the child of God can lead to breaks in fellowship and witness. Paul warned about this in Philippians. And keep in mind, Philippians is the most positive letter Paul wrote in the New Testament. He loves these people, but he gives them a warning because he knows the human heart and he knows what it can be. In Philippians 2.3, he writes to this church that he dearly loves, do, not, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. In other words, it's not about me. And it can never be all about me. You need to work toward each other. But pride says, look at me. See how great I am. See how wonderful I am. And when you have that kind of mentality, if that invades, it will break the sense of unity within the body of Christ. Because it becomes, what about the songs I want to hear? Why isn't Charmel picking the type of music I like? And by the way, another good set. It's not about are we singing the songs I want to hear. It's not about is he preaching out of the Bible I like the best. It's about what is good for the body and how do we worship Lord and how do we love each other. But if I am full of pride, it becomes about me. And if it invades our sense, it will dull the need for telling the world because folks... I've shared with you, I don't know how many times, I'm not sure how many times I will share it with you again, but I will. According to polls, blind polls where people are telling the truth, 95% of evangelical Christians have never shared their faith with anyone. 95% have never shared their faith with anyone. And one of the most cited reasons, fear. I'm afraid they may reject me. I'm afraid they may mock me. I'm afraid I might look bad because I don't know the right things to say. 
When it's about pride, folks, everything becomes zeroed in on me. With pride, we lose sight of who we are. Who are we? Children of the living God who are called to love each other with a tremendous love, who are called to love our neighbors as ourselves, who are called to esteem others as greater than we are. But I'll forget that. If it's all about me, I'm not going to care about you. So we must always remember that who we are is wrapped up in what Christ did. When Jesus gave his life for me, and I opened my heart in faith to his invitation, and I received Christ, the word of God, Paul says in the Corinthians letter, I became a new creature. I'm not the same person I was before. But if my eyes are not focused on Christ, if my eyes are focused on me, I can forget that. And when I come to the table of the Lord, instead of saying, thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice, I might not really realize what that means. I am called to be a child of God. And so Paul brings up this issue. If this leaven, if this yeast of pride has caused them to boast and they don't understand, our next truth comes up. Remembering who we are is crucial to the living of godly lives. I must remember who I am. I have to focus my heart. I am a child of God. He has saved me, not just to get me out of hell. Salvation is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's a open-your-heart, live-for-Christ, love, move in this world and make a difference. So when I remember who I am, a child of God, saved by grace through faith, then I begin to understand why it's important that what I say I believe and what I act like mesh. One of the number one reasons, again, people say, I don't want anything to do with organized religion. They're no better than me. They don't love me. They don't love each other. Folks, we've got to strip that away from them. I remember my first church out of college, a little country church, and Rachel and I picked a, just one road to go down and start meeting the people. We made seven stops and six of them said, I'll never go back to that hypocritical church. They're a bunch of hypocrites. I didn't know. There had been about five church splits in this church's history. One, the pastor was there about three months and split the whole community. And I got tired of hearing that. I thought, man, Lord, please, don't let me hear that hypocrite word again. Because if they say it again, I'm going to punch them in the nose and just give them one more hypocrite. Folks, we need to remember who we are. Paul's admonition to get rid of the leaven 
in their lives pointed to the truth that they were to become what you are. Corinthians, become what you are. Paul says here, you must get rid of the old yeast because you already are a lump without yeast. You're already dough. You've already been saved. So why are you going to pull back the things of this world? Why are you going to hold on to that which you have been freed from? The image of leaven in Scripture is virtually always meant to point towards sin. Rarely will you find the word leaven or yeast, depending on your translation, ever given in a positive light. And the word that he says, get rid of the old yeast, means to clean it out. Some of you are familiar. This is much later than the biblical era, but it has become very common within uh, the Jewish community when Passover's come up, that the parents will hide little bits of yeast throughout the home, and the kid's job is find it all and get it all out. Leon Morris said, Sin is dirty and defiling, and like yeast, it will work until it permeates the whole. The only way to deal with it is to get it out. Paul pre- speaks about becoming a new batch that is without yeast, which you already are. Do you catch that? He's telling them, do something. Become. You have been saved. Now, live like it. Second Corinthians 5.17 points out, when you became a Christian, when, we, when you became part of the body of Christ, it was not an old society patched up. Have you ever tried to take something really old and just bad and make it look better? Second Corinthians 5.17 says, it's brand new. They needed to regroup. They needed to understand. They need to live what they say they believe. So don't hold on to that yeast of pride. Don't hold on to anything of the world that will compromise your life. Get rid of it. And we're about to do communion, the Lord's Supper. And the taking of communion is a call to remember what Christ has already accomplished in our lives. I've shared with you, but just again I will, while Baptists typically prefer the phrase Lord's Supper, I like the word communion for two reasons. One, it is an act of fellowship between us and our Lord when we are uh, exalting and thanking Him and praising Him for what He's done. But it is also an act that we are sharing with one another. And when we look at this ordinance that Christ gave, we are reminded, one, Christ died that we might forget, be forgiven. He gave His life that we could become part of the family of God. He made us new and alive. When Paul says you were dead in your sins, but now you are alive because of what Christ has done. And He is our Passover. The one who died that we might be free from the penalty of sin. And in an act that draws us together. 
On two different occasions, I've had the privilege of taking the Lord's Supper in an international setting. Many years ago, I was in Ukraine. And uh, it was the first Sunday we got there for the mission trip. And I was actually going to, I got to preach. And we observed the Lord's Supper together. And the other was, when you guys helped me get to China, I, we had the uh, communion there as well. The thing about it is, I couldn't understand the language of the songs they were singing. Every once in a while, a familiar tune would come on and say, yeah, right, I know it. But folks, I was as home there taking the supper as in any church I've ever pastored. Because they were my brothers and sisters. And all of the cultural and language barriers that stood between us, there was love because we are children of the living God. And since this is an act of the body of Christ, we must not allow our pride to get in the way. We must open ourselves and humble ourselves before Christ because none of us deserved His sacrifice. None of us deserve the forgiveness. It's an all act of grace. And we must embrace the truth that we are new people through the work of Christ. We are. Now I know that old man raises his head and I know we are still tempted and I know there are times we give in to the temptation far too easily. But there is new life in us. And we need to learn, Lord, You give me what I need so that my life can have this upward climb so that I will become more and more like You. So that your love will shine through my eyes. Your peace will live in my heart and be shared with those around me. Lord, make me really into what I already am. Let me grow up into what you want me to be. See, as long as I keep making excuses for myself, I'm I'm keeping myself from growth and progress in my walk. When I open my heart to Christ, I am reminded in this act, I am called to live like a child of the King. And then finally, through our Passover, we can know the joyful celebration of a godly life. When I open myself up to what Christ has done and remember what He's done, I open myself up to the need for me to live. But through Christ, our Passover Lamb, we can live it joyfully. And Paul uses that image in a very meaningful way. Paul's call to live the yeast with unleavened bread was a powerful image. It's been pointed out, as as I've already stated, the church was foolishly boasting about the, the instance of immorality in her midst. And Paul's implication is, you should not be happy and boasting about this. You should be weeping. When a brother fails, we don't celebrate that. We weep, we cry. He wanted them to understand 
Freedom in Christ is not a freedom to sin. As those who believe in eternal security, that once I became a child of God, Christ has put me in the Father's hand and no man can pull him out, that is never a license to do what you want to do. We are saved to live for Him. He wanted them to understand that. He wrote, again, verse 8, Therefore let us keep the festival. And by the way, that's probably an image of living the life. Our life should be a festival of joy and meaning and happiness and truth and peace because we are of God. Let's live the, keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, those things of the world, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. For Israel, the feast of the unleavened bread became part of the Passover feast. And the bread had to be unleavened because they were about to leave the old life and move into a new. The idea behind it, you don't have time for the bread to rise. So bake it, eat it, and go. This was the beginning of something new for them. Their new life in Canaan was a holy life to God. So when Paul makes reference to the feast, the feast of unleavened bread, he's calling the people of Corinthian to actually live a joyful life. Holy life of a holy father. Get rid of everything that's keeping you back. More than one occasion, I have told you guys, the theme of our life as a Christian should not be nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody knows the sorrow. Folks, there ought to be a difference. And it's a possibility. Why? Because the Passover lamb has died for us. And now, Paul says, purge it. And as you purge it, keep in mind, this is a festival. This life should be a life of meaning and richness and hope. First time I ever had somebody tell me I didn't act like a preacher. I've had a lot of people tell me that. First time, my initial reaction inside is, what have I done? Why won't they believe I'm a preacher? What did, how did I mess up? I said, yeah, I'm a preacher. Why? You don't act like a preacher. What do you mean? And I was afraid that she worked with me. I was afraid I would have been really ugly and all that kind of stuff. He said, preachers are mad and, and never laugh. And you laugh all the time. Folks, wouldn't it be great to know, have people say, I know you're a Christian because I see joy in your life. I know you're a Christian because what you say you believe comes out. We can see it. That's the goal. That's the purpose. And so when we partake, partaking of the Lord's Supper reminds us that we are to be truly committed to our Lord's purpose. Christ's new life lives in us. When He was raised from the dead, he gave us the promise of life eternal. Become unleavened. Repent. Walk the holy life. Live for Christ. This is why Paul called the Corinthians and every believer since. When you come to take at the table of the Lord, examine yourselves. See where you are. The celebration called the Lord's Supper is a moment of time that we can call 
that can call us back to living the joyful life we're meant to live. Yes, I know there's sadness here. Jesus died, and he died because of my sin. But there's joy here. Jesus died to set us free, to give us life. So we must take this occasion to yield our lives more fully into our Passover hands. Our Passover's lamb, Lord, here I am. Do with me what you will. The Corinthians, because they are so full of pride and seem determined to get everything wrong, had to have an admonition from Paul. When he said, you need to examine yourself. And when he said, you need to examine yourself to see if you're taking of the supper in a worthy manner. He is not saying people who aren't perfect can't take the Lord's Supper. Because if this were available to only perfect people, how many of you feel comfortable saying, well, I could take it? Thank you for your honesty. What it means is, where is your heart? Check yourself. See, am I walking in unity with my brothers and sisters? Or at least, am I trying to? Because we all know you can't always make people do what they should do. Am I serving Him? Am I loving Him? Is my heart for Him? Am I longing to walk with Him? This is about remembering who Christ is. And this is about remembering who we are supposed to be. And who we are supposed to be are a people committed into the hands of the Lord who gave His life. A people for whom the joy of the Lord is our strength. A people who know what peace can be. A people who have learned to love and walk in communion, not just at the Lord's Supper, but all the time with one another in Christ. This is who we are called to be. And we are called to examine ourselves. So at this moment, we are going to do what countless numbers of believers have done for 2,000 years. I'm going to invite you to bow your head before God and take a look at who you really are. Am I open to you? Am I serving you? And as you look at yourself, and if you know I'm not where I should be, now is the time to say, Lord, forgive me. And cleanse me.